This is the Let's Get Real Estate Show with your host, Danielle Chason. Full-time investor, strategic consultant, motivational coach, sought-after speaker, and host of your number one real estate investing show, Let's Get Real Estate, where real people are doing real estate. Hey guys, this is Jacob Perez on the Let's Get Real Estate podcast. I'm a investor and mortgage agent. You probably know me because I probably worked with you and a lot of your friends throughout all of Ontario, but um, we're going to have an awesome episode for you guys. We're going to talk about how to position yourself to scale your portfolio, especially in this tough recessionary environment. So looking forward to hearing your feedback. Hey everybody, it's Danielle Chason here and I am your host for the Let's Get Real Estate podcast. And today on the show, we have Mr. Jacob Perez on the show. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to getting started. Yeah, I know. Me too. Because today we're going to talk about uh, scaling, setting yourself up to scale your portfolio. A lot of people, a lot of people have a hard time scaling up due to financing and getting blocked for financing. And Jacob is actually a mortgage broker. He has his own brokerage called JP Mortgages. And based in Hamilton, I believe, right? Yeah, well, it's actually called Synergy Mortgage Group. That's the name of our brokerage in Hamilton. JP Mortgage is my email URL, so sometimes I can get mixed up a little bit. My bad, my bad, because <laughs> I'm used to emailing you back and forth. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So if you guys, um, if you guys hang tight, we're gonna introduce you to Jacob real quick. Um, he has about twenty doors in the Hamilton area, and uh, excuse me, 20 properties, about 72 doors. And that's about $20 million in real estate that he has under management. He has done a crap load ton of capital raises for these projects. And he does it too for his clients. So Jay, Jacob, welcome. Woo. I can't wait. I can't wait. Okay. I really want to know. I'm, I'm like so excited for you to explain to everybody how the heck do we get over this obstacle when the bank starts closing the door on us. But before we get to that, Jacob, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, how did you end up in, because you're a young guy, so how did you end up investing and getting $20 million of property under management at the age of 32? How'd you get there? Uh, it was always step-by-step, step, right? So I was a business grad, and like most business grads, I had a lot of you know entrepreneurial dreams and things like that. And um, I remember hearing the concept of a rental property when I was in high school. You know, I didn't know about cash flow, appreciation, anything like that. Just that you can put a down payment down and have somebody pay off your mortgage for you. And I always thought that that was so easy and seemed so obvious. And why aren't more people doing it? So when I graduated university, I saved up money and I bought my first property. Um, and then about six months later, I bought another property and then I was like out of money completely. So I had probably negative dollars in my bank account. I didn't invest very smart. You know, a lot of my things were negative cash flow. So I kind of went back to what society tells you to do. I focused on my career. So I went, I did a master's in data and analytics. And when I was in Toronto doing this master's in data, all my classmates who are from Toronto area didn't really understand how I was owning multiple properties and things like that because that wasn't common in Toronto for you know us young kids. So from there, I started developing a lot of joint venture partnerships and that's when things really started to scale. And that's when I also decided, hey, you know, I don't want to work this corporate career anymore. And I abandoned you know all my education and my master's and I started becoming a mortgage agent. And then this career has really took off and um, I've gone to help you know, hundreds or thousands of investors at this point across Ontario. And as much as I can help them strategize, I get to learn from their strategies as well. So that's a bit about my backstory. Um, but like most people, just trying to find a better way year after year. And, and luckily, it's got me this far. 
Okay, you said you abandoned all of your education and your corporate job, all of that. Do you regret it? Absolutely not. I think like I think you can really be trapped because if you get to these 150,000 or 200,000 large salaries, those are really hard to leave and that could be one of the most limiting positions you could find yourself in. Oh, that's so true. They call them the golden handcuffs, right? And mm-hmm. and the middle management. I mean, you're comfortable and then you're at that age where you start, you know, you have a wife and kids. I don't know if you're if you're at that stage yet, but you know, you start building a family and then you've got responsibility. It's even harder to leave that for the unknown. So what was it that helped you overcome that kind of to abandon all? Because that's a huge, how long were you in school for? So, you know, I guess five years between undergrad and my master's. Um, The way I did my master's, I did a program where you can do it outside of full-time hours. So I did a full-time job while I was working, doing a full-time master's at the same time. And there was one kind of critical point where I decided to just completely say goodbye to it. You know, real estate was always a backup plan of mine. I was always thinking in my head because I loved real estate that I could be a mortgage broker. I could be a real estate agent. That was always kind of like a path in the back of my mind. But I remember I got an interview for a really, really high paying position. It was multiple six figures. And I was surprised I got the interview, but I did really well. And then every stage of the interview process I smoked it. And I think what happened was I kept winning the interview process to the point where I completed eight interviews and then I didn't get the job. And it was like two months of my life, eight interviews. And at the end, they're just kind of like, you know what, you just don't have enough experience for this type of role, which was true. Like I really didn't have enough experience for that type of investment from a corporate company. But that was when I was like, I'm begging, I'm pleading for people to to let me work for them. And that was when I said, you know, this really just doesn't make any sense anymore. And that's when I decided to go work for myself. Wow. Wow. And you're doing fantastic, by the way. And I think, uh, I think, yeah, I wouldn't go back. I I didn't come from a corporate background, but like, I wouldn't change it for a a minute for what I have today. Um, and the freedoms that I have today, which I'm sure you also enjoy. What I'll say though, is the grind is real, right? You didn't get to building this portfolio in a business without, um, having to put your head down and grind. Yeah, so let's shift gears now and talk about um, talk about scaling. So, what do we do, Jacob? If I'm an investor and I have three or four doors, and now we're in a declining market, the lenders are tightening up, the options for lenders are limited, and their requirements are a lot higher and more strict. And so what do I do now in order, maybe I don't even qualify because the rate increase might have just pushed me right out of the price point that I want it to be investing in. And so what do we do with that? How do you navigate these waters that we haven't been in in like decades? Yeah, it's a great question. And for everybody listening, the answer might be a little bit different for each person based on your own, you know, custom profile, what your life looks like and things like that. Now, I think the first step you might want to take is find somebody who doesn't seem to be running into those obstacles and trying to figure out what they're doing, who they are working with, right? So maybe it's a mortgage agent like myself. Maybe they have another contact who's really kind of helping them scale. But somebody who's coming from a similar background from you who doesn't seem to be running into all those same obstacles, a lot of times it's not so much what they have to do. It's just what they don't have to not do, right? There's a lot of things that inhibit people from being able to buy a lot of property. So for example, we hear a lot about don't buy a brand new vehicle. You know, a lot of real estate agents say that a lot of mortgage agents say that that's kind of like your traditional 
thing that people say. But one of the biggest things that holds people back from building a large portfolio of real estate, specifically on the residential lending side, is buying a big primary residence or really a primary residence at all. That's usually the biggest liability in any mortgage application. So yeah, a car may have a $400, $600, $800 payment, but a house with a mortgage that's $3,000 a month with property taxes, with utilities, that's going to be like a 3x, 4x, 5x increase on how that impacts your mortgage application. So I think if you do want to have that big luxury home or you do want to have a cottage or something like that in the future, you keep those purchases to be one of the last purchases you make as opposed to what people traditionally do. And they usually buy those things first. I want to get a home first and then I want to get a rental property. In reality, you should probably flip that. I want a house hack. And then I want to exit that property, move into another house. I could then house hack, right? Buy a property that could be conducive towards building a portfolio, not that old school mentality, which is starter home, hope it goes up in value to then, you know, sell it and buy something bigger. So I think the primary residence is that elephant in the room that for some reason, a lot of people don't want to talk about. You're not going to hear most real estate agents talk about that because they want to they want to be able to sell their listings you know if i'm a seller and my real estate agent is screaming don't buy a primary residence i'm like gonna fire them and get a new listing agent right but um but in reality the primary residence is definitely something that holds people back one other thing we do with all our clients when we onboard them is we do what's called a portfolio analysis so not only do we look at you know your income your debt what you qualify for we actually evaluate every piece of debt you have and we go okay if you are going to pay out the debt here's the order in which you should pay out the debt. Sometimes the highest interest debt is not the debt that's impacting you the most in a mortgage application. The other thing is you don't necessarily have to pay out all your debts. Sometimes it's just one phone call to restructure the payment structure on that debt to then help you qualify for 100,000 more, things like that. So you might have uh, an OSAP loan, which would be a student loan here in Ontario. And you might just need to make one phone call because you're paying it off on too aggressive of a fashion mortgage applications really boil down to one simple thing and that's your monthly obligated payments versus your monthly income so how can we make all our payments set up on the minimal possible monthly obligation in order to improve our borrowing ratios so if you're buying a primary residence or a rental property trying to pay that off with bi-weekly payments or on some version of an accelerated amortization all that stuff is good if you're goal is to pay off the property but if your goal is to maximize your borrowing that stuff's actually hurting you so usually when you know we're having conversations with people everything in life life is opportunity cost there's an opportunity cost essentially to everything and really it comes down to what am i trying to optimize if my goal is to optimize my borrowing power right maybe you don't quit your job right away right maybe you hang on to the job a little bit longer you know as opposed to jumping into your entrepreneurial thing or if you are going to jump into your entrepreneurial endeavor, just make sure before you do that, you're lining up partnerships that are going to improve your borrowing power, right? So there's always a solution for people, but I think it comes down to that simple, keep your costs low and keep your um, income as high as possible. And sometimes keeping your costs low is a little bit, you know, how committed are you to it? And I think avoiding that big primary residence is one thing that will really help people grow. Or the Tesla. <laughs> or the Tesla, right? And, and, you know, one other thing just to add to that, which we kind of teach our clients on, and sometimes it helps them pivot their strategy a bit, is that 
the market you choose dictates how far you can scale very often. So it's going to be a lot easier to scale a rental portfolio in Sudbury, Ontario, than it's going to be in Hamilton, Ontario, where I built the majority of my portfolio, right? The cash flow margins are not as large in Hamilton. So when you buy a rental property in Hamilton, even if it does cash flow, it's going to hurt your ability to service a mortgage a lot more than a fourplex that you pick up in Sudbury that might be listed at 500000 or something like that. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So this is what I heard in order to set yourself up to scale. Don't buy primary residence or incur some big debt, unnecessary debt that you don't need to incur. Um, I, I love what you said about how, house hacking. I mean, if if you do have to live in it, you can house hack it and then make it a conversion, uplift the property, and then maybe pull out some equity out of that property or, like you said, let that one sit, get some income on that one and buy the next one and rinse and repeat and do the burst strategy. Um, the other thing you said, the second thing was pay down your debt strategically. And I love that because when you pay down your debt, that helps your debt service ratio. And the other thing that you mentioned with your income, don't give up your job because you want to keep that income so you can qualify. Now, having said that, what about, um, do you ever encourage your clients to maybe go and get another job or find a way to increase that income? There's different ways we can potentially increase that income. Maybe rent out your basement if you duplex it, that's one way, or rent out a room and do short-term Airbnbs. Is there any strategies that you uh, discuss with your clients? Well, absolutely. Right. Like, you know, even if you have a property where you're not sure if you want to rent out, you know, your basement unit or secondary unit by creating a secondary unit, you can take your time to make that decision because we can have an appraiser assess what it could rent for. And if you're in the process of renting it with the majority of lenders, that's just as valuable as long as an appraiser can corroborate, hey, you know, this thing could bring in $1,800 a month should they need the income. Right. So I think that we should always be looking to increase our income, you know, in a in a fashion where maybe we're not being robbed of all our time. Right. And the other piece of it is for those people who are self-employed, what we do with all our self-employed clients is at the start of every year, we do an analysis based on what net income do you have to claim out of your business? How large of a dividend do you have to claim out of your business in order to align with your borrowing goals for the upcoming year? Right. So sometimes it actually might make sense to pay an extra 20,000 in taxes, maybe a bit more than you need to, if it means that that's going to generate two, three, four more real estate transactions for you in the year. That's the opportunity cost, right? Or on the flip side, some people net their income down really low and they see alternative mortgage rates that come with fees and much higher interest rates. And psychologically, they just don't even want to invest in real estate because of those higher interest rates. But when they look at it from the perspective of, okay, I can take this mortgage product that has a higher interest rate and my payment's going to be $400 a month more, but I'm going to save $40,000 on my tax bill. So I'll pay another four to 5,000 a year in mortgage payments by saving 40,000 on my personal tax liability, right? So sometimes like, you know, maybe you go cash flow break even or you go cash flow negative because you're in a higher interest rate product, but you're saving money in another fashion, which is, you know, your tax liability. So I think just understanding the dominoes that come with every single decision and finding what's the right mix of those dominoes for your specific situation. Absolutely. And I, and I love how you say that because, um, 
everybody's situation, and this is what you started out with at the beginning of the podcast, everybody's situation is very unique and very different. And so I think speaking with an expert like yourself and talking about what debts do we have and how can we reposition certain things and find the weak links and fill those gaps, I think will put you in a stronger position. But everybody's situation is very different. I'm 46-year-old self-employed. Uh, real estate investor, and you're a 32-year-old real estate broker business owner, that's very different. Our debts are going to be very different. I have dependents. I don't think you have. And so everything's going to look very different. Um, and so it's very important to talk to somebody like yourself who knows what to look out for. And um, so, so let's talk a little bit about, because you talked about the difference between going with an A lender by, you know, somebody who's self-employed bringing out more cash out of their business into their personal income so they can qualify or the alternative, which you're talking about is like private lending or a B lender where the rates are higher, the fees might be higher, but what does that look like? What is the difference between the two for people that are listening who maybe don't understand? Yeah, great question. So at the very basic level, if you want to work with an A lender, that's, you know, your major five banks and, and a whole host of other lending institutions. The reason you want to work with one of those institutions is because one, they generally have the lowest interest rates in the market. And two, they don't charge you fees. So sometimes with other forms of lenders, based on the size of your mortgage, they'll usually charge you one or 2% of a fee based on the mortgage. So it's just essentially a burnt cost at closing. Now, when you're working with you know, A banks, you're going to get access to certain products. Now, sometimes there's comparable products on the B side. Sometimes there isn't, right? So I'll give you an example. If you want to buy a cottage with a major bank, you can buy it as a secondary home and buy it with as little as a 5% down payment. So if your goal is to buy a cottage, that option doesn't exist on the B lending side. There's no option on the B lending side that's less than 20% down. So if you're looking to get into a property with a minimal down payment and you're self-employed, well, then you're going to need to position yourself to borrow on the A side, right? So that's just one kind of key thing. So you've got to kind of know what your strategy may be. If you're somebody where you're looking to set up lines of credit against all your properties, lines of credit are a lot less uh, a lot lower in interest on the A side than the kind of options you're going to get on the alternative lending side, right? They might be on the alternative lending side so high that you might as well just get a private loan at that point or something like that, right? Um, so it also too, another thing is that alternative lenders, the good thing about them is that they'll look at shorter tenures of work history. So if you're self-employed, typically with a major bank, they want to see two years of taxes filed and put together an income for you based on that historical average. On the alternative lending side, they'll look at six months of banking and simply just review the deposits that are going into the business. And if there's a healthy flow of deposits that makes sense, they'll utilize some version of an income for you. So whether you net it down on your tax return or whether you claim a really small dividend personally, that stuff doesn't really matter to, on the B side. They just care about the strength of the business and they determine that through the bank deposits. Now, with the alternative side, They'll take a larger risk on the applicant, but they're actually stricter on the properties. So if you have an investment strategy where it comes down to investing in very rural markets with populations less than 20,000 on very distressed property, alternative lending might not be your best fit. Whereas the A lending side, they'll essentially lend anywhere in Canada. And you know they're, they're pretty tolerant of a distressed property, as long as they kind of see a version of you getting to the finish line and renovating it. 
right? So again, it's all about figuring out what is my strategy, what lending channels work for that strategy. If all the lending channels work for that strategy, perfect. Then it just comes down to like a money calculation, right? But if you say, you know, I have to invest in Timmins, Ontario in distressed property, you know, alternative lending means you're going to have larger down payment requirements than on the A side kind of thing. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Just knowing too, like, you know, where you're, what you're saying here is what your strategy is and where your market that you're going to be investing in makes a difference and know and understand that. So you know what kind of financing you're going to go after so that you can position your financing to satisfy that type of lender. I've never actually heard it this way before. So that's pretty cool. Thank you. Um, what would you say about private money? Like, do you deal at all with private lenders and private money? So if, if I don't qualify for an A lender, a B lender doesn't like the market or the property where I'm at, then what are my options? My options are to go to private financing. Do you do any of that in your brokerage? Yeah, absolutely. I think private lending, it just goes hand in hand with investing in real estate because often when we're investing in real estate, we're looking to uncover the properties that have upside. And generally the properties that have upside come with bigger problems. And when they have bigger problems, sometimes they're not habitable enough for a bank to finance, right? And that's Mm -hmm. where private money will come in. So if you're somebody who's looking to flip a house and you're buying a house that's already gutted to the studs and there's no kitchen, no bathroom, well, there's not going to be a banking institution that's going to fund that property because they don't want to have to repossess a property that they deem is not marketable to put back on the market. Whereas a private lender will simply lend based on their perceived equity in the deal. So if they think the property is worth, you know, a hundred thousand, they'll give you generally up to like 80% on that property. And private lending is, it's really great because there's no income verification or things like that. It's really just, is there equity in this deal? And is there an exit strategy? Can I see the person who's buying this property exit? And usually the exit is you're flipping the property or you're exiting through a different loan type. Maybe you're getting it into a state where the bank would finance it and then refinancing at that point. Or it's something like an apartment building multifamily and you're turning over 10 units, getting the rent roll up and then exiting through a commercial loan or something of that nature. So private lending is great if you need to close really quickly on a property, if you need to close on a property that's really, really bad condition, or if you simply just don't qualify on the A or B side, um, but you can make money with a higher interest loan, a private loan is a great option for that as well. Let's talk a little bit about fixed versus variable mortgages, because right now in our economic environment, we have people or sorry, we have the bank that's raising the interest rates and people are freaking out because they have variable mortgages. And most of them that are variable mortgages are seeing an increase in their monthly payments. And so what would you say let's talk first about the difference between a fixed and a variable and the the pros and cons to each. Yeah. So there's two types of mortgages, you know, and a few layers within that, but usually you you have fixed rates and you have variable rates, right? And the fixed rates are very straightforward. You get an interest rate, it's 2%, 3%, 4%, whatever it may be. And it's fixed over a certain period of time, one years to five years, typically in Canada, somewhere in that range. Now the benefit is you get the peace of mind that your rate stays consistent throughout your term. The downside is if you break that mortgage, the penalties associated with the fixed rate mortgages, if you want to refinance early, if you want to sell the property, if you want to move that mortgage into a lower interest product that comes to market, the penalties can be very, very expensive. If you're getting a fixed rate penalty at one of the major banks, these penalties can be upwards to around 
4% of the balance of the mortgage, which is very high. Um, if you get a fixed rate with some other types of institutions, you can get a lower penalty exposure. Um, but some of these types of institutions are a little harder to qualify at. And then if you go with a variable rate mortgage, basically what happens is that you have you don't have a rate, but you have either a discount or a premium to the Bank of Canada prime rate. So the Bank of Canada prime um, rate is a rate that you know a lot of different lending um, products move off of and the bank can get together eight times per year. They review the economy, inflation, a whole bunch of different measures, and they decide whether they're going to keep the Bank of Canada prime rate the same. They're going to e- increase it or they are going to decrease it. So historically, there's very little movement in the Bank of Canada prime rate. However, in the short term, in the last you know four months, five months, we've seen unprecedented movement with the Bank of Canada prime rate. So people who have variable rate mortgages are seeing the rates skyrocket really and um, there's two types of variable rate mortgages you have a adjustable rate mortgage and you have a static variable mortgage if you have a static variable mortgage your payment actually stays fixed throughout your term it's the principal and interest within your payment that fluctuate so you get put into a position where you're just paying down way less principal or no principal on your mortgage when the rate hikes keep going up but your payment stays flat that's the ideal type of product to be in not every bank offers it. And then on the flip side, you're in what most people are in, which is very variable rate mortgage, where when there is a bank candidate rate increase, your payment goes up with it, right? And I think right now, a lot of us investors are seeing our cash flow dwindle pretty considerably in this market, right? Um, maybe you're somebody who is break even. Now you're in a really vulnerable position. And it's having us all go back to the fundamentals of real estate investing and factoring for a cash flow at a higher interest rate than it's available in market, right? A lot of things that we weren't doing because we were all on the gravy train for a long time. I think it's having everybody now come back to the fundamentals. Um, and But the big benefit of the variable is that the penalties to break them is very small. So people, a lot of investors want variable rate mortgages because they're refinancing, they're buying other property, they're selling the property, things like that. So when you sell, uh, break a variable rate mortgage, the penalty is traditionally three months of interest. So if you compare that to a fixed rate mortgage, it's usually about like one eighth the cost. So usually in the past, you know, any kind of fluctuation would be mitigated with the penalty savings. Nowadays, we're in a position where we may see that not being the case for the first time in like a short window of time. Yeah, I love that. And you mentioned too, I know a lot of fellow investors and friends of mine that are really starting to feel the pinch on their cash flow that they're kind of starting to panic a little bit because the essentially the debt service has doubled since March and it seems that it's continuing to go up. We have another announcement that's coming up in a couple of weeks. And the uh, the assumption is that it's going to be another rate hike. And so people are starting to say, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So if you had a client that came to you and said, hey, Jacob, I was cash flowing great, you know, at the beginning of the year, but now I don't know if I'm going to be able to hold these properties anymore, because all my cash flow is gone for the extra debt service. What would you say to them? Yeah. So I'll answer this question with my mortgage broker hat. And then I'll answer this question with my real estate investor hat and give you kind of two two schools of thought on it. But the first one from a mortgage broker perspective is, is basically you have a few options. One is, am I in a position where I could extend the amortization on this mortgage? So can I qualify to extend the term from 25 years to 30, 30 to 35, 35 to 40, 
depending on the product. Most mortgages max out at 30 years. There's some unique products that go further than that, right? So first step is, can I extend the amortization on the mortgage? The other question is, um, does it make sense just to swap it into a fixed rate option? So you can move it into a fixed rate. Maybe you don't want a five-year term at these rates, but maybe you want a two or three-year term. You might see another bump in rate, but at least you kind of stop the bleeding at some point, you know, through a shorter term fixed option. And you don't need to qualify for that. That's the good thing. You just call your institution and ask them what the rate options are, and you can convert your mortgage to a two or three-year fixed. You have to convert it to whatever the minimum is of the term remaining in your mortgage. So if you have two years left, your mortgage has to be at least two years. If you have three years left, it has to be at least three years. Um, And then the other thing you can do is you can move it into a cheaper variable if you have, if there's bigger variable discounts out there or into a static variable where maybe you just at least get the payment flexibility, right? So those are kind of your options as, uh, you know, from a mortgage perspective. The other version is from an investor perspective. How can I generate more income from my property? right? So what a lot of people are starting to do now is they're pivoting, right? They're pivoting to medium term rentals, they're pivoting to short term rentals, where they're able to generate higher income monthly. So that's something you might want to consider if you're in the position to do so, right? And, um, and then you just have to look at, you know, all your rental units, are you in a position to turn anything over? Are you in a position to, you know, offer a tenant, you know, a cash incentive to leave to get that income up. Like there's a lot of different ways to look at it. But I think when you do have available units, like right now, for example, I'm uh, renovating one of my units that had like a water damage, a flood. So I'm turning over a unit I already had. And it's like, maybe I won't put it as long-term rental. Maybe I'll pivot that one to an Airbnb and see if I can generate an extra, you know, $800,000 a month, whatever it may be kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that's where the new the new environment that we're in is really pushing us to be even more creative than we've been in the past because like you said we had the gravy train to ride on and go with that and it, you know anything we did you just couldn't go wrong the rates were low and values and rental rates were high and um so now everybody's really scrambling because now it just got real right <laughs> yeah and you know what i i've always kind of like been uneasy with some of the culture of the real estate investing environment. And we're we're always talking about freedom. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, retiring from the cash flow and things like that. I don't think that cash flow of rental properties is really a viable exit, you know, unless, you know, you're an old person and they're all paid off and things like that. But I think the importance of having an active business, right, is really important, right? And I think that is you're starting to see, you're seeing more investors come out with, you know, coaching courses, come up with like skills. I see some investors who are picking up, um, you know, they're designing Airbnbs for other investors, like whatever it is, right? I think the importance of having an active business and having the ability to increase your income is really the kind of the theme to everybody, not just real estate investors, right? Because I think the people who are your traditional homeowner who are in a government job, well, those people they don't have the ability to necessarily just jump and and generate more income at their work. Right. So I think, you know, looking at your business that you run right now, how can I double down, triple down, or how can I get into an income stream where it is variable, where I can kind of ride the wave here and kind of keep up. 
Yeah. You know what? Having, having a business and just to tie this into your mortgage hat, I mean, you're talking as an investor and how to survive as an investor is to kind of go vertical with your business or with your real estate investing, create another business that creates disposable income or cash flow for you to be able to live off of instead of the rental cash. Um, I, I really think that's critical, but tying that into what you do for a living and what we're talking about, like getting financing, how does that help you get financing for the bank? It's not going to hurt you, right? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not. You know, I'll give you an example, right? So there's income that we can use on paper, right? So income that's filed uh, with the government, or if you're working with a major bank, you have two years of filings and things like that. But if you do have a side hustle, you do have another job and there's something demonstrable from it, well, then that's the kind of stuff that helps get people exceptions. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize is that there are mortgage rules and there's exceptions to those rules. And we get exceptions to those rules all the time. And how do you get those exceptions? And one of those things is, hey, you know, the client has this full-time salary making $90,000 a year, but they've actually been running this interior design business on the side. Here's banking savings. I know we can't use the income in the application, but can you consider this to give us a very large exception? right? Mm -hmm. Here's their website. It's very reputable. They have this many Google reviews, whatever it may be, right? But yeah, the, the more income you're generating, the more uh, financing options will be available to you. Also, the more contacts you're going to make, the more partnerships you're going to be able to form, like all these things all play together. And um, for somebody like me, who's kind of been like, head to the ground for like seven years really or eight years whatever it's been grinding on the investing part and then jumping into the mortgage world four years ago it's like now it's like through these businesses through these contacts like if i need something i could i could find a way to make it happen but you're living on an island by yourself not networking not involving yourself trying different things that's when you know that first step is so scary kind of thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it certainly helps when you have a network and I'm glad that you're in mine now. I love that, that we've finally connected. We've passed, I mean, we've just passed each other and been in the same rooms, but we've just never fully connected. So I'm so glad that you were able to jump on the podcast today and share with the audience. Wow, you gave a lot of, lot of information that I think is going to help the listeners in a huge way like massively, especially going through these economic times. Everybody needs that extra guidance and um, that sound voice in their head and you can literally be that for them. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Before we go, is there anything, any last words of advice um, that you want to share with the audience when it comes to scaling their portfolio and setting themselves and their finances up for that? I think the, the main message is it's completely possible for anybody to do this kind of stuff, right? Like, you know, I, I think back, I remember yesterday when I started investing in real estate, just, just getting that first, that second, that third, it just felt so difficult, right? And now I'm in the position where it's not difficult to do anything. I'm just trying to be more calculated with it. What do I want to do? Why am I doing this? Does this fit my core values? Things like that. So, you know, I think that there's enough opportunity in this industry for everybody. I think this little recessionary cycle we're going through is going to flush out a lot of people and you're going to get back into an environment where maybe there's a little bit less competition than there was one year ago, two years ago. And I think that's going to be a good thing. But I think that um, we're also in a little bit of a unique time where you might benefit from waiting a little bit. So if you take a chill pill, if you actually set yourself up <laughs> properly, you don't rush to the market, 
right? That may benefit you right now. Whereas two years ago, you know, if you coughed and three months went by, the valuations went up 50,000, 100,000, whatever it may have been, right? So I think, you know, it's certainly possible for anybody who wants to do it. And if anybody wants to chat anytime, find me on Instagram at Jacob Perez 10, just send me a DM. I have a lot of options to schedule calls and I will talk to pretty much anybody about anything uh, when it comes to real estate and things like that. So looking forward to, to meeting everybody. I love that. And that's such a generous offer. And yeah, he's there to help. And the beautiful thing uh, about, you know, COVID, it has allowed us to just be online and virtual. So you can essentially service anybody across Ontario, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's, it's funny, because when we started our mortgage business, like I've always run it this way. I've never really met clients face to face. I've always worked out of an office for the most part, because I like to be around other professionals and kind of like learn the trade with them type thing. But, um, but it's always just more efficient, right? Like I know people don't want to come in, in the, in the office and meet you. They don't want to take time or their day, things like that. So we try to keep everything as streamlined as possible and then, um, meet everybody at the events and things like that, you know, that, that always take place in this industry. Yeah. We're going to have to connect at the next one. Cause you yeah. know, we're going to be in a room together again. <laughs> Well, listen, Jacob, it was, a, it was a pleasure having you on the show. I really enjoyed our chat. Uh, I really learned a, a bunch of stuff. I mean, I was taking notes like crazy and I uh, really do appreciate you taking the time to come on. And with that, I am going to sign off. This is Danielle Chason, your host for the Let's Get Real Estate podcast. Until next time, bye for now. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast and congratulations on improving your education real estate. Please leave a review only if you felt we provided value as it would really help us if you would leave a five-star review so that we can help reach a broader audience. And don't forget to comment what you enjoyed and tell us what you're looking to learn more about. As always, thanks for your support and we'll see you on the next episode.